Chapter Eight of the Story of Sitka by Clarence Leroy Andrews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter Eight Sitka under United States Rule. Then came the day when the Russian was to withdraw from his colonies, and the United States was to occupy them as Alaska, an area as broad as an empire equal in extent to Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Denmark combined, was to be handed over from the imperial ruler of all the Russias to the Republic of the United States, and Sitka, the capital of the colonies, was to be the scene of the actual transfer. The statesmanship of Secretary Seward, aided by the eloquence of Sumner, had secured for our country a domain one-sixth as large as the whole United States. October 18, 1867, Alexei Pesturov, the commissioner of the Tsar, appeared in front of the Baranov Castle, and beside him stood Lovell H. Rousseau, the commissioner for the United States, who was to receive the territory. The Russian soldiery were drawn up along the terrace which ran around the Baranov Hill, and next to them were the men of the United States Infantry. The ensign of Russia was lowered. The flag of the United States raised to the accompaniment of the salutes from the batteries and of the guns of the ships in the harbor. The few words of the ceremony of transfer were spoken, and Alaska became a possession of the United States. Most of the Russian residents went back to their native land as soon as they were able to do so but some remained to cast their lot in the land that had so long been their home. Among those who remained are the Kashavarovs, the Kostromidinovs, the Bolshanins, the Shutsovs, and others, whose descendants now live in Alaska. The commanding officer of the American troops, General Jefferson C. Davis, made his headquarters in the building on the hill that had been so long the residence of the Russian officers. The American soldiers were quartered in the barracks of the Siberian battalion, and the sentries of the United States walked the beats of the Russian guards. Sitka gradually adjusted itself to the new conditions, to the crowds of adventurers who thronged its streets, seeking a profit in speculations in lands and furs. They were doomed to disappointment, for the titles to lands were withheld, and the fur trade was overdone. So most of the newly arrived drifted away as they came. Distinguished visitors came and were entertained in the old castle, where the commandant dispensed hospitality. Lady Franklin, the widow of the famous Arctic explorer, was once a guest at the mansion on the Kikur, and Secretary Seward was entertained there in 1869, when he visited the land he added to the possessions of the United States. While the military garrison were content with their conditions, and were not troubled with the affairs of the world at large, the civil population wished for the law and authority of other communities, and set themselves to remedy the omission of the government in far-off Washington, so far as was possible to do, for there was no provision for an organization of civil government in the community. They organized a municipal association, 
drafted ordinances, elected councilmen, collected revenue for improving the governor's walk, changed the name to Lincoln Street, and in December opened a school. After five years the civil population declined until the revenue was insufficient to maintain the expense. The organization was abandoned, with it passed the school, and the first attempt at self-government closed. Then followed dark days for Sitka, military rules for the garrison, and no law or protection for the people. Soldiers from the fort are said to have robbed the church of its ornaments, tearing the covers from the richly bound Bible of the cathedral. The offenders were apprehended, but there being no civil law, all the punishment meted out was to be drummed out of the service and sent to the states on an army transport. The stolen property was hidden under the old hospital building, and was discovered by some boys, and nearly all was restored to the church. On New Year's Day, 1869, Kolcheka, a noted chief of the Chilkats who was visiting Sitka, was entertained by General Davis at the castle on the hill. The liquid refreshment served to him by the general raised his spirits and his pride of race, after it was over, he descended the long flight of stairs leading from the commandant's quarters and strode across the parade ground with the dignity becoming to the hereditary chief of the Chilkats, the proudest Kwan of the Tlingits. For some reason he crossed the part reserved for officers, was challenged by the sentry, and, not heeding, when he reached the stockade gate, was kicked by the sentry stationed there. He was furious. Me, Kolchika, chief of the Chilkats, kicked. He turned in a rage, seized the musket of the sentry, wrenched it from his hands, then carried it to his house in the ranch. The guard was turned out for his arrest, and a skirmish ensued in which the guard was worsted and retreated to the barracks. The Sitkas were neutral. The Chilkats were too few in number to fight the troops, so next day Kolchika surrendered, was kept in the guardhouse for a few days, and then released. Meantime, orders that no Indians be permitted to leave the ranch were issued which were revoked upon Kolchika's surrender. Through some mistake in revoking the orders, the sentries were not notified. A canoe load of Indians left the ranch to get wood. The sentries fired on the canoe and killed two of the occupants, a Chilkat and a Kake. It was an unfortunate mistake. Those shots rang from Lynn Canal to Kuiu Island, and the echoes vibrated for more than twenty years. By listening intently one might yet hear the vibrations. Two white men died, and three Indian villages burned directly as a result but it happened in places distant from Sitka, and, as they say, it is another story. On a June day of 1877, the troops of the United States Army embarked on a ship for the States and sailed away from Sitka. The buildings and property were left in charge of the Collector of Customs, who, with the postmaster, constituted the only officials in the territory. The presence of the military had guaranteed safety from attack by the Indians to the people of the town, 
and the officers had been a pleasant addition to the social life. With their departure both were lost. The animosity of the Tlingits had been kindled by many wrongs, some real and others fancied. They saw in the new order of things an opportunity to recompense themselves for past grievances. All the old stories of the killing of their countrymen by the troops, the burning of old Kake and other villages, the loss of five Kiksitis in the schooner San Diego in Bering Sea, and other tales were rehearsed and were used to stir the lust for vengeance. The Kiksitis, under the leadership of Catlian, openly advocated sacking the town, killing the men, and making slaves of the women. The government does not care for the country. They have abandoned it. It belongs to us, anyway. Why not take the town and do as we wish with it, said Catlian. The Kokwantans, under Anahut, their chief, opposed the outrage. For months there was danger of an outbreak. Insult after insult was placed upon the citizens. The stockade was cut down and carried away by the Indians. Every male inhabitant was armed and expecting a call to battle at any time. A man was killed at the hot springs by a Keek city. The murderer was arrested through the assistance of the Kokwantans under Anahuts. The Keek cities assembled to rescue the criminal, but the citizens of the town rallied for defense. The Kokwantans joined them, and the murderer was safely placed on board the steamer California and taken to portland for trial where he was afterward hanged on the same boat went an appeal for assistance directed to the united states government but it fell on deaf ears another petition was sent to victoria b c and was heeded captain a holmes a court of h m s osprey at once set out for sitka arrived on March 1, 1879, anchored opposite the ranch, and trained his guns for immediate use. The danger was averted. Captain Accord remained until the arrival of the USS Alaska on April 3rd, then departed for Esquimaux with the blessings of the grateful people of Sitka. On June 14th into the harbor came the USS Jamestown, her commander, Captain L. A. Beardsley, assumed control of affairs in the community, and administered them in a manner which brought credit on his name. He found everything at the lowest ebb. Every woman and child who could leave had gone to escape the danger of Indian massacre. Witchcraft prevailed among the natives, and anarchy among the whites. He took a census upon his arrival, and the result was 325 people, exclusive of the Creole population. He appointed an Indian police, established more sanitary conditions in the ranch, numbered the houses, and compelled the attendance of the Indian children at the mission school. A school was opened in the old Russian barracks building on April 17, 1878, by rev john g brady and miss fanny e kellogg of the presbyterian mission which was later followed by the present sheldon jackson mission school george kostromitinoff afterward known as father sergius 
was the interpreter. The opening of the school was a great event for Sitka, and nearly everyone in the town attended. Anahoots, the friendly Coquanton war chief, made a speech. Mr. Cohen, the brewer, hunted up another interpreter to assist. Hymns were sung, and the events were auspicious. The Indians stole in one at a time, some with their faces blackened, all in blankets, but they squatted by the wall and listened attentively. The school was continued until December, when it was given up, but in the spring of 1880, Miss Olinda Austin from New York City reopened it on April 5th in one of the rooms of the guardhouse with an attendance of 103 children. The school thus established was the beginning of the present Sheldon Jackson Training School. The support of the naval officers at the station was such that the missionary teacher was moved to say, It is not often that the government sends out a missionary, but they have sent in this young commander and his lieutenant, Mr. F. M. Simmons, in referring to Captain Glass, who succeeded Captain Beardsley. Some form of local government giving the residents a right to regulate their civil affairs was favored by the commander, who had not even a code under which to act. A meeting was called, ordinances were drafted, a magistrate and councilman elected for a town government. But all were not agreed upon these acts, and opposition arose against it from the very inception of the movement. One of the traders of the town, Kaplan, said, De captain may go to, with his tam government, I'll pay no taxes. And from Silver Bay, where he was mining, George E. Piltz sent in a protest against the proceeding. The dealers who traded molasses to the Indians, from which the villainous liquor called Hoochinoo, or Hooch, was distilled, objected to the ordinances restricting the trade. Finally, an English miner named Roy was shot by his partner, Scotty, and the inability of the self-made government to try the offender brought a crisis. The next day, a notice appeared stating the organization had been dissolved, and the second attempt at self-government by the people in Alaska passed into oblivion. Scotty was sent to Oregon for a trial, and was discharged because of lack of a law to punish a man for assault with a dangerous weapon in Alaska. But the dawn of a better day was at hand. Alaska's darkest hours were past, and morning was breaking. The rule of the Navy Department continued until 1884. Then, although the warships still remained in Alaskan waters, by Act of Congress of May 17th, a form of civil government was granted, and the official capital was placed at Sitka. The terror of the Indian outbreaks was passed. Schools were in reach, for the same act provided for the establishment of a system of public education, and the Code of Oregon was adopted as the law of the land. Then some of the life of the former years returned to the beautiful village by the sea. There were pleasant parties among the residents. The governor held receptions. The officers of the warships added to the social life. Many a gay ball was celebrated on the top floor of the courthouse, and for more than twenty years it was the capital of Alaska. With the influx of the Americans, prospecting began, 
for in the vast wild mountains of Baranoff and Chikagoff Islands there is a wealth of minerals stored in the ledges. The Russians had attempted to find the mineral of the mountains, and in 1848 a Mr. Doroshin, a mining engineer, had been sent out from St. Petersburg to search for mineral wealth in the colonies. He was not successful enough to make it of profit to them, although he found coal on Cook Inlet, gold on the Kenai Peninsula, earth promising to bear diamonds near Kutsnahu, and copper was known to be on the Maidnutsky or Copper River. Discharged soldiers of the garrison were the first to take to the hills with pick and shovel. Nicholas Haley, an old-time prospector of Arizona, who came with the troops to Sitka, was one of the most energetic and daring of these. Year after year, with pick and shovel, with rifle and blankets, Nicholas attacked the rugged mountains. Rich specimens were brought in and yielded enough when brayed in a mortar to keep him in a grubstake but it takes capital to develop a hard rock mine and capital was wary so nicholas toiled on year after year keeping up his assessments and living on hopes until at last he passed over the great divide to a better diggings others tried it in eighteen seventy eight a mining company was organized at Sitka, but there was not yet a law under which a claim could be legally taken. Ledges were found, small mills were placed on the ground at the Stewart Mine, the Lucky Chance, and elsewhere, and later great fakes were promoted at the Panned Basin and elsewhere. But it was years after that when two Indian boys, hunting on Chickagoff Island, lay down to drink at a stream, and behold, in the shimmering water was white rock with yellow glittering particles dancing in the clear stream. With the fear it was but fool's gold, they took specimens and marked the place where they were found. When they reached Sitka, they submitted these samples to Judge de Groff and to Professor Kelly of the Sheldon Jackson School. It was pronounced to be gold, pure, shining yellow gold, and richer than the most sanguine had hoped for. After much labor and many disappointments, the ledge was located from which the float came and to-day that mine the shikagoff it is called is known as the richest and best-paying mine in the united states in proportion to the money invested and more than one fortune has been taken out of the tunnels in the mountain off the shores of the continent reaching far off to the westward almost to the shores of asia are vast fishing grounds perhaps the greatest in the world a great submarine plateau stretches along shore, past the Aleutian Islands, and into Bering Sea. There are estimated to be 40,000 square miles of cod and halibut banks that are known to the surveys. The fisheries of Gloucester and Cape Cod fade into insignificance, and the famous Newfoundland banks are but small in comparison. Sitka goes back the farthest in historic memory of any city of the Northwest. When Lewis and Clark came to the mouth of the Columbia River, she was looking out over the Pacific from her stockaded walls, and Rezanov was sailing to search for locations for new colonies. 
when Astori was founded, she was placing her outpost on the Russian River in California. Before San Francisco was a city, she sent her bedarkas to take the sea otter from under the very noses of the padres in their missions. Here the civilization of the East met the progress of the West. The Orient and the Occident met here, and met without bloodshed. Sitka, with her wealth of fisheries in the waters at her doors, with her wealth of mineral in the ledges at her back, with the wealth of forest on the mountain slopes around her, is in the same latitude as Edinburgh, Scotland. The time is coming when she will have population and wealth. Beauty she already has. What more is wanted for the happiness of her people? Only energy, perseverance, and thrift, and those will be forthcoming. End of chapter 8